Good evening. Welcome to Tuesday Evening Chapel. How are you? We are affirming. We are affirming. We are attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Well, I think affirming to the whole measure probably works too, but let's say it right one more time. We are attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The preacher of the evening is Professor Jan Deuce. She is going to help us consider through the word our relationship with Christ and our love for him and for others. We desire to do both, Father. Worship and obey. Fully aware that we really can't do one without the other. So help us to hear your word through your servant for your sake. Help us to worship and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I would invite you, if you would like to, to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. The last time I preached this message uh, was in the uh, church where my husband and I pastored before we moved here in Michigan. And after I finished preaching this message, and after, I don't remember re really whether I had an altar call or not, but I do remember that at the end of the service, a couple came up to me and said, I want to, we want to talk to you about your message. In fact, um, we'll just call them, this isn't their real names, but we'll call them Marge and Peter. And when they came up to me, he said, we had made a decision regarding our family, automatically assuming that this particular kind of decision is always right whenever your family is a priority. And I say to us tonight, we are right to prioritize our families. In fact, one of the greatest fears in this day in which we live and, and one of the most troubling and perplexing problems that we have in our society, the society to which we are called to minister, is the breakdown of marriage and the splintering of family ties. But you know, then we stumble on Luke 14. We stumble on Luke 14, verses uh, 25 through 33, which says, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And everyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose once of you, one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? 
It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Any of you ever tripped over these verses? Especially those first two verses, verses 25 and 26. I mean, it says, people were following him, Jesus turns to them, and he just says, you got to hate your family. But I believe that from this passage, especially what I want to focus on are these two verses and then the verses that follow those two verses. I believe that within this text, we have and can learn from this passage an important truth of at least two important things about discipleship. First of all, that discipleship means we have to grapple with the nature of our attachment to those whom we love the most. Secondly, discipleship means taking inventory of our lives to make sure that we have what it takes to follow at great cost. Let's look first at the fact that we need to grapple with the nature of our attachment to those we love the most in order to truly follow Jesus. The text says that he looked at the crowds when he said this, and I believe that this means that this is one of the first things he wanted anyone to know about him when it came to following him. He's not just talking about his, to his disciples. He's talking about the baseline place that you begin to consider when you think about following Jesus. And he tells them just immediately, you have to hate. You have to hate something that is very near and dear to you. This is the same Jesus who said, love your enemies. And now we have to hate those who are nearest and dearest to us. Well, what does he mean here? Well, I believe that the idea here is, in the usage here of the word hate, is basically the meaning to love less. It is the idea of loving something less or hating it in order to make room for loving something that you should love more. So he is calling us to a type of detachment in order to be more greatly attached to that which is most valuable in our lives, namely following him. I believe that this is a meaning of a similar passage, and for a minute I'm going to have us look at some other passages in the Gospels where, where he talks about a very similar idea about our attitude toward following Jesus and, and the life of giving up all to follow him. Now some of these passages, at least one, uses the word hate. The other ones illustrate more the idea, again, of preference, of loving less in order to love God more, loving certain things, people in our lives less in order to love God more. Let's look first, and you don't need to turn this with me because I'm, I'm going to do it kind of rapidly, but you might want to write it down to make note of it later, is Matthew chapter 10, begin reading at verse 37, who says, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Our love for Jesus should be so great that if we are forced to choose, the winner must always be Jesus. Look with me, if you would like, at John chapter 12, verse 25. 
The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for life eternal. Well, you probably are sitting there saying, oh good, I'm so glad that you explained that, because that is a very, very perplexing verse. Um, aren't we always relieved at these explanations from the Word of God? You say, well, yes, of course I love Jesus, and of course nothing else compares. But coming back and, po and focusing on this passage, I think that the word hate there is put there for a purpose. Let's not water this term and this concept that Jesus is trying to get across to us. Let's not water this down with some kind of notion of Christian sentimentality. Because a person who lives the way of Christ and showing a preference for Christ will manifest in their lives to such an extent that there may be times in which an onlooker might interpret their actions and decisions as hatred toward family. I believe that this will be true in the life of a disciple to such an extent that there will be times wherein a family member who does not understand or a family member who will not understand they will interpret that, that your decision and their actions constitute abandonment and hatred. Because you see, I might be thought, it might be in the thoughts of someone that I am abandoning or hating my family if I gave some of my Christmas money that we might spend on ourselves to someone in need. I might be, it might be considered that I might that I am possibly abandoning or hating my family if I delay buying my child a new bike so as to be faithful to paying my tithe. I may give some time to ministry and it might be interpreted as abandonment or hatred if I end up having to miss some time that could be spent with my family. I might be thought to be abandoning or hating my family if I refuse to let my grown unmarried son or daughter sleep with their significant under other under my roof. I might be considered as hating my family if I went to weekly worship when family is visiting from out of town rather than staying at home with them. These are hard words to hear, but I believe they are the truth. In fact, you know, the more you look, the worse it gets, I hate to say. So we look at the example of Jesus Christ himself. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 we have this incident. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak with you. He replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does, does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus Christ himself found his family to be those who are working alongside with him in ministry. Those with whom he invested in order to build his kingdom. Now, I don't think he completely forgot about his mother and brothers. In fact, in John 19, verses 26 through 27, when Jesus was fulfilling his mission 
and destiny in dying on the cross, we observe this touching moment. So if you'd like to turn with me to John chapter 19, verses 26 through 27, it says this, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. There is also in Mark 10, 9, where we also see the fact that God would have us place our marriages at high importance. The sacredness of our marriage vows is in, illustrated when Jesus says in Mark 10, 9, therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. And yet, let me ask you something. Does this emphasis in the words and example of our Lord match the things that you tend to hear currently within the Christian community about this topic? Some of you say, well, yes. And you think, well, I don't know. Here's the problem I've got, folks. I was going to offer $100 to anybody who could contradict me on this. I didn't consult my husband about that, so probably better not. But you know, here's the problem. I can't find any place in the saying of Jesus where he tempers these words regarding family. I, I, I can't find them. You can find them, let me know later. To whom are we I really speaking tonight? To whom am I sounding this clarion call? Well, those of you who are sitting right in front of me who are students, who are staff, who are faculty, administration, for whom the call to discipleship later on has had the additional call to ministry and ministry preparation. Yes, I am speaking to you, but you know what? I am speaking tonight, tonight to all who are called to be disciples. We all have to grapple with the nature of our attachment to those whom we love in light of this basic call to discipleship. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important, first of all, because I want you to know that it is a baseline commitment that's not just an addition to, oh, that's right, I need to remember this because I'm called into ministry. This is basic Christianity 101. But it's something else. The call of God on your life is very special and very precious in addition to being a disciple. But it's something else. Those people who are in your life who call themselves Christians their basic commitment is the same call in their detachment from family, in their detachment to the extent to where they need to commit you anew and afresh to God. I say tonight, spouses of students, does not God call you in this way as well? Adult and teenage children, is this not what you must do as well? Parents with your children, is this not what you must do as well? Forsake, in many ways, this attachment. Surrender to God. Let Him redefine the nature of your attachment as a disciple of His. I'll never forget when we were first um, pastoring in Bowling Greens, where my husband and I were co-pastors. And moving to Ohio like that was very difficult for my husband. My family was nearby. His family was quite a ways away. And I remember that 
One of the first times his parents ever came to visit, after they sat down front when Alan was finished preaching, um, the people were gathered around. Some of them had not met them yet and were anxious to meet them. And I was in another part of the building, kind of in the back. This was after church, as I've said. And uh, a lady came up to me who had just become a part of our congregation. She was a new Christian and striving to learn to become, learn to become a Christian mother. And she said to me, you know, I just talked to your mother-in-law, and she just said the most amazing thing to me. And I said, well, what is that? And she said, well, I went up to her, and I started just talking about what a great preacher her son is and how privileged we are to have him up here at Bowling Green and, and what a wonderful man of God he is. And boy, you, sh you must be very, very proud of him. And she quietly said, yes, we are proud of him, but he belongs to God. He doesn't belong to me. You see, again, we must surrender to God our attachments and let him help us to know what that means as a disciple because it, it involves a cost. The second thing these verses call us to today and in our time in our setting here within our modern culture is that we need to take inventory of our lives to make sure that we have what it takes to follow at such a great cost. You know, Jesus is telling us to take inventory starting in verse 27. I'm going in from 33. Verse 33 toward the end says, Jesus says we must be salt. We cannot lose our distinctiveness. And I believe that that is one of the areas where we as a church, if we are not careful, are losing our distinctiveness. In our forsaking of all to follow Jesus and our understanding of what that means, that is the way that the world will know that we are distinctive. We must be salt. We must have this understanding of the attachment to Christ and what that means at times for detachment, that our commitment and our priorities must reflect what God tells us to do. Also, discipleship kind of has this common sense component. That is, whenever we engage in a risky venture, we always take inventory. We make sure that we have counted the cost and that when we take the leap, that we have the commitment sufficiently in place so that we can follow through. You're going to build a tower. You're not going to do it unless you decide that you have what it takes to finish the project. You're a king. You're thinking about making a commitment to go to war. You don't go without deciding whether or not you have what it takes to win. Are you still? as a disciple of Jesus Christ, taking inventory of what it means in light of what our emphasis is tonight. Are you taking inventory as a disciple of Jesus Christ of what it means to forsake even our families at times to follow Jesus? You see, my burden and fear for the American church is that we need to re redefine things in order to assuage our sense of discomfort and to assuage our fears. And you know what? I'm just like the rest of you. I'm really afraid of what is going on in our society. I believe that in many ways we need to sink everything we can into saving our marriages and our family. Again, hear me. I am saying that we must focus on our families. But, but, 
with all the good we can do for families. And as much as we love our families, let us not in our best intentions be deceived. If we are not careful, we can be guilty of filtering our commitment to God through our commitment to family. Here is the mentality I'm concerned about, reflected in words like this. Oh yes, I love Jesus most of all. I came to Christ to save my marriage, and that really is what keeps me in church. Time with my family, having fun is more important than anything. Well, today is worship, but hey, let's just go to the mountains anyway. I know that the church needs my help with ministry, but as long as I'm taking care of my family, that is the only ministry that really matters. Well, we are retiring now, and we have raised a very nice family in the church. But now we're finished with that, so God has no further claim on my time or my money. Some of you might remember uh, Don Wellman, who pastored at Denver First Church and who developed a wonderful set of materials for discipleship. And I don't know if they're even still in print now, but he speaks to a lot of this issue about discipleship and family. And I'd like you to hear his words. He says, one of the enigmas of life is that there are many people who have won their children to their homes and to themselves, but have lost them to God and the church. And then he says, can you recall any time when a family has won its children to God and the church that has lost them to its home? Now, I want you to hear carefully that the emphasis here is the family won its children to God, and I believe he's talking about a healthy family who put God first. Granted, there are dysfunctional families who part of their dysfunction was not establishing and understanding healthy boundaries in many areas of their life, including their religious practices. Well, I believe grown children from that environment, God wants to heal and help, but I think we need to be careful that we don't take some of those bad experiences and blame the call of Christ for that. Granted, there have been dysfunctional families who have occupied church parsonages, and the grown children from those situations need to deal with those dysfunctional patterns that manifest in their lives. But that does not mean rejecting the life of ministry itself and the call of Christ. The cost of discipleship is everything. The gain is very high. The loss from not following God is higher. The cost of compromise is not very high, and the return on that kind of investment is worthless. Don Wellman also said something else that I want to quote, and he says, God holds us responsible for disobedience. But listen to this. God holds himself responsible for your obedience and the consequences of that obedience. Now let's think through life circumstances for a minute. We don't have much longer, but just a suggestion for you. When we think then through life circumstances as discipleship of Christ, disciples of Christ, we need to live constantly in light of God's purpose for our lives. That is central, that is unchanging. But in each circumstances, each of the circumstance that we face in life, we ask, how is that overall purpose to be expressed today and in these circumstances? Well, let me give you an example from my own life. 
as I have tried to live this out for you in pastoral ministry. I had a lady that I was discipling week to week, and she depended on that time. The week came up when she, we were to meet, and I realized that it was one of my children's birthdays, and that we were going, we had a practice where we take them out of school and take them out to lunch at their favorite place. So I called my secretary and asked her if she could probably reschedule. No, she couldn't reschedule that woman at all. And so I thought about it. I prayed about it. What is God's purpose for my life right now? You see, I did not automatically assume, folks, that's the thing we need to be careful of. Do not automatically assume. Christ and his purpose in our lives come first. And that's the piece of, the ch of in today's church I'm afraid we are putting aside too much because we're the pendulum swings and we're reacting to to tradition where sometimes this has been a problem. But I prayed about it. The Lord said, the purpose for your life now is to be a mother, committed mother. So that woman, we just didn't have discipleship for that one week. And there was another situation in which I had agreed to help at a district function, to help with a seminar. They were short on people, and I had agreed to help. And just as I had realized that I had agreed to help, my child had a soccer game. Was God's purpose for my life in that situation. The people that I would let down and the compromise for the kingdom, something that could not be put aside, needed in that situation to come first. So I did not make my child soccer game that day. I began this message tonight talking about Marge and Peter, and I kind of left you hanging on that. Because Marge and Peter, who came up to me and said, we had made a decision regarding our family, automatically assuming that our decision was always right when you prioritize your family. We have not been able to jump into the ministry here that we know we are called to because we're constantly pulled back to attending as well a church we attended years ago when our children were small. Uh, now our children are adults and say that if they ever darken the church door, they will only go if we will promise to keep our ties in that church. We have been miserable, but assumed that God would have us put our family first. And then with tears in his eyes, the man said, the Holy Spirit has been dealing with me all through your message. And we now see that in this instance, that this is not the case. Our adult children need now, more than anything, an example of consistency and obedience to Christ from us. God, help us to keep our love for family subservient to our love for our Lord Jesus Christ. possessions. You can have our families. You can have our time. You can have our talents. We love you so much. We just give it all to you. Just help us to walk in your spirit and give us wisdom about what your purpose is for our lives and how to express that purpose in everything we do and say. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.